Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. Check it out at tkex.org. Today, I'm joined by the famous Mr. Gregory Lehman. He is a, a, sport and, a strength and conditioning specialist. I don't know if he would call himself a strength and conditioning coach. Not anymore. Not anymore, but he's definitely well-known. Some people would call him just a mere blogger on, on, um, on the internet, but he has definitely contributed a lot to the field when it comes to pain science, biomechanics, and meshing them two together in an awesome course, which I highly, highly recommend. So Greg, thank you so much for, for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, yeah, the, I say, I say I'm, I'm not like a, a strength coach anymore because uh, I mean, I have my strength and conditioning, but I'm primarily a physio or a chiro. Yeah. Yeah. And which one would you call yourself? Because you're, you're both. Physio. I guess physio. I'm a, more of a physio, you know, so I used to, I used to be a coach with like the uh, women's hockey team or the basketball team. I still use strength and conditioning principles, but I, w- I always think of coaching as like you're working with a team, you know, for long-term stuff. So I don't really do that anymore, but I work with individuals with strength and conditioning parameters. But anyways, just being a pedant. <laughs> and um, I'm assuming most people already know most of your story. If you could give a quick intro as to what you've been up to clinically in the, in the past few years. Sure. I mean, I've, I've been in the field like since I was 20 because my undergrad was in kin. So, um, and then I did a master's in spine biomechanics and published a bunch of research papers, maybe 20 plus or so. Uh, and then I went to Cairo College. I still did research. Uh, I was a faculty, faculty member at the Cairo College, which is nice that they let me do that. Uh, then I was in clinical practice by myself for years and I went back to physio school and then I've just been in clinical practice with a, just dipping my toe in a little bit of research for the past uh, 10 years, Not, nothing uh, extensive. And then the past five years, I've been uh, teaching my course about biomechanics and I call it pain science. But really, it's just like, what's the, the best evidence for like, what's a good framework to fit biomechanical principles into the biopsychosocial model? That's it. And I love the way you, you simplify all the, all the concepts. And I'm curious as well, in terms of the recent changes with the pandemic, have you been yeah. able to transition into the online space with telehealth? Uh, so I, I've always done uh, like online consultations for at least three years now. I mean, not, not a massive number of people because my, my practice in the past three years says it's a lot smaller as I don't work time anyway because I'm traveling most of the time um, but I've always seen a few patients a week uh, online so that's that's nothing new uh, so that that hasn't hasn't changed yeah so yeah I think and and uh, and I and I have a clinic out of my house we moved so I could build a clinic in my house so this is actually bad timing for building my my clinic because the past few months we've just so, slowly started actually at, like letting people know about it rather than people coming to us. So this sucks. <laughs> Just when you had started off, it, it has to pause for a good few months now. Well, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to increase the number of people I was seeing in person. <laughs> and then this came. <laughs> oh, well. 
I think it's, it's awesome for everybody. That, yeah, exactly. And I think it's awesome that you, you mentioned you've, it, there's no, not much difference when it comes to your, your practice, your, your way of practice with online versus uh, in person. Uh, surprisingly, no. I mean, you, you can still do an exam. Yeah, you can't put your hands on people, but um, most of the clinical tests you can modify. You could show people videos to do it. You can guide them through it with good coaching. Like uh, most of my treatment over the years, I stopped just by accident, not on purpose, I'm not against manual therapy. I just stopped kind of doing it as, a, as the primary treatment modality. So it, it's, it's not really a, a big shift for me at all. It was always about planning and trying to address a number of factors. Coaching people, I guess, that's probably the better way to look at what we do. Being more of the, the guide for, for someone's journey versus the, the fixer mindset. I think so. Uh, yeah, I, I, for, for, for sure. I mean, I've been, I, I haven't liked the word fix for a while, although it sneaks in there by accident because I use it like, but I don't think I'm putting a joint back into place, which is fixing somebody, you know, that type I, of idea. I love the way that you also are able to encapsulate that with, with your course and, and your, your writing. So you're, you're, you're able to simplify the process of combining, as we mentioned, pain science and biomechanics. And I'm sure you've come across a lot of perhaps misconceptions, people reading your work and taking their own spin on it. So what are some of the, the recent misconceptions and misunderstandings? Yeah, I, I mean, what often, often happens is people think that uh, if, you, if you talk about the biopsychosocial, they think, oh, you just talk to your patients or that you don't care about mechanical interventions at all. And, I, and I'm like, no, like the pri primarily my interventions are mechanical. Like it's exercise and activity modifications, doing doing more. But what we've changed, and I've always done this, is like what what elements of the biomechanical approach, like which ones are important. That's what's changed. Like, and there's a nice um, editorial uh, by Kay Crossley, Australian, of course. You must know her. Uh, <laughs> I meant personally, that was a joke, but I'm sure you know her as a researcher. Uh, and, uh, oh gosh, I, f I forget the second author, but it was about reimagining or re revisiting the VMO paradigm for knee pain, the VMO versus vastus lateralis. Uh, and essentially, if you look at, at what they're doing, is they're saying it's just a graduated loading program, and that's how they, they view it now. It's not about like, oh, your VMO doesn't turn on and you have a problem with how you use your muscles. So our, our treatment approach is gonna teach it to turn on in the proper way. But if you just looked at their old treatment approach and you didn't listen to them speak, I always say, like imagine watching a therapist and they're on mute. If you just really look at what they do, it's just a graduated loading program with really good advice, a good, maybe a different explanation for their pain. And you say, well, that's why that mechanical approach is helpful. It has nothing to do with like fixing some dysfunction or aberrant movement pattern or if those things do change they're like epi phenomenon like a red herring they they change but secondary they they're not the mediator of recovery they just happen as well they happen parallel to someone getting better that's that's like that's the course in a nutshell as as you know like yeah yeah so the i i guess we've been stuck on trying to i guess 
diagnose a specific problem at the start with their, their assessment and then fix the dysfunctions before getting them back into their meaningful activities. So it's kind of reversing that order where it is. Whereas the idea is that we find out their starting point and that can their loading starting point and then we we get them gradually back up to their meaningful activity whatever that might be yeah it's the idea that the doing is the fixing if you want to use the term fix it's not you don't need to fix someone first before they start doing the things that they love right and and we're probably not people probably aren't in pain because of the things that we always thought they need fixing like oh no you have restricted dorsiflexion that must be fixed or you'll or you won't get out of pain it's sort of saying well you can tolerate that dorsiflexion it's something worth work uh, potentially worth working on but probably it's not something you have to do that 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 that's sort of the, the idea and and at the same time there like when you question that that that's the kinesiopathological model when you question that you're also open to when those biomechanical boogeyman might be relevant. You know, like I, I don't think everyone with low back pain has to get stronger or they're, they're in pain because they have, you know, quad weakness if they're a runner. But um, there might be cases where, oh, no, we better get that person stronger. You know, like if you tear your ACL and you want to return to football or like hot, like sprinting or running or you you probably should address that that knee weakness, but somebody else who might have knee pain, uh, like the, it's not the weakness that's driving the pain. Although exercise might still be helpful, just for other reasons. So, so again, when you challenge biomechanics, you should also be open to like when is that uh, challenge wrong? When when is the biomechanical approach helpful? So going from that top down approach would be what do they want to get back into what's their meaningful activity and that might be running and they can find a dose that's appropriate for them and that might be all they need. But yeah. so you're mentioning sometimes going perhaps more into the joint by joint approach or the, the what does that particular uh, joint or muscles need, what do they need to do to handle the, the yeah. meaningful activity? So there's a bit of balance. That, that's a neat area. It's like, it's it's kind of a strength and conditioning area too when you say okay what's the best way to prepare someone to run and i would say for most people if they're not injured it's run <laughs> it's like what's the what's the best what should you do you know like they, well you just start you should run if you want to run or what's the best way to get stronger for squatting well squatting and and, and so so if this is a big strength and conditioning and then, then it goes into the question of like, well, when do you need like supplemental exercises? Right. Like, and I do not work with like elite squatters who squat 800 pounds, but when do they need to do stir the pot or like super heavy duty core work or, or is squatting, you know, just enough for them, those sort of debates. So going back to running, like if someone has a stress fracture or I'm like, I have a patient with medial tibial stress syndrome is running just enough to stimulate that bone and that tissue to adapt. And there, that's where you start thinking, you know, running is osteogenic and running does influence the tendons and the muscle, but maybe that person needs like a little bit more to tolerate the demands of running. So that's where you might give like, and cause they're not a health, they're not, they already had the injury. So that person might get some hopping or some strength and conditioning for the ankle region or something like that, or diet or so, something else with that. That's always the challenge for me. When, 
when do you have to when do you have to add the extra stuff right and we we do need like that's a really it's uh, it's guesswork now i would say just add it because you can't know for sure but yeah <laughs> and there's a plethora of benefits regardless when it comes to the yeah. strengthening pot that that's it like that's what's really nice like i'm writing a pro, a free program online for people with knee away or hip, and hip osteoarthritis and so we're like lots of things can help people with knee pain like associated with osteoarthritis exercise physical activity you know coping probably like just getting involved and in doing more social activities every day i guarantee they they would all help and and medication and and drugs will help and injections will help as well but the side effects of exercise are better than the side effects of uh, injections or manual therapy or something like that, right? Like manual therapy will help people with knee osteoarthritis. If you, if you went every, twice a week to see a therapist and got manual therapy, definitely your knee pain would decrease. And then and the research suggests that. In the long term, it's not as good, but yeah, initially. Um, but the, the side effects of exercise trump any of the side effects of manual therapy. Or injections. I wanted to, to touch on, you were mentioning a stress fracture and ACL and perhaps where the, the biomechanics matters when it comes to preparing that joint for the movement. When does yeah. the initial diagnosis matter when it comes to the, the management of a patient or an athlete? Yeah, I mean, you, you know what? I, I don't think it matters that much except for prognosis saying like, ah, you know, give yourself some time, right? Like, like a muscle strain, people tend to recover a bit sooner than a tendinopathy. So just would be like, ah, give, you know, stick with it for at least six, eight, nine months if it's a tendinopathy. I think it helps with that. But if, if, if your practice style is like, like my, what drives my practice in a lot of people is, okay, if you're rehabbing someone, your, your goal is to return them to the things that they want to do. So you're kind of looking for the disconnect between what they do now and what they have to do. And then your rehab program just fills in the gaps. Right? And that's the same for like an elite athlete or someone who wants to get back to gardening. You're like, you have low back pain, you have trouble gardening. Okay, this is what you have to do during gardening. Let's build you up to do all these things. This is, I'm just talking about the mechanical stuff. So the injury itself to me, unless it's like some sort of red flag where it tells us, oh, oh, we definitely, we need help. It's a surgical case or they need help. It's, it's a, a, a triple, it's an ab abdominal aortic aneurysm or something like really serious. But um, for the most part, the structure isn't, you know, what's, uh, at, and diagnoses are all about structure, isn't what's going to, it's not what's going to tell you what to do. It's, it's what they want to do and what they're capable of doing now. So very little. <laughs> There's, there's also the diagnoses of of say uh, a movement intolerance of some sort would you what do you what do you think of like a flexion intolerant or sure sure and that's fine i i know people like that they'll say we really need to find a diagnosis and people teach courses about that but then when you you go into it and they're like their diagnosis is just describing what hurts <laughs> and so i wrote a sh shitty blog on that which was like talking about stomach pain you have burrito induced stomach pain like that's not a diagnosis, but when we tell someone they have flexion-induced low back pain, it's the same thing. I'm saying it's burrito-inducing, burrito-induced stomach pain. So whatever, those things are fine because they're actionable. But we shouldn't we shouldn't change the definition of the term diagnosis. 
so it's great to do that stuff but at the same time you should also be like it's it's flexion induced it's also sleep related it's stress related it's uh your belief about the pain related it's your fear related so now it's all of these things which is we've always done and that's why i use the cup analogy which you know it's like all these are all the potential contributors to your sensitivity what do you want to work on <laughs> but they're not diagnoses let's be honest definitely not and maybe the diagnosis can be helpful for the for communicating between other professionals in the medical field and getting them the i guess the necessary treatment within the the system i'm thinking workplace work cover um, compensation claims where they need a specific diagnosis but the treatment doesn't yeah. really doesn't really change it's more a matter of what they want to do and maybe some prognostic factors so should we then focus on more of those prognostic factors such as you know yellow flags and the, the stages of tissue healing and how how severe the injury is in terms of how long they will have it for versus getting in on the tissue specific diagnosis yeah the, the prognostic factors would be the the contributors or the mediators right which which should should come up and all all, all the time we have to say though like I, I don't think that there's ever one thing that has to change and that's important right like you'll, you'll see like this is what people knock the biomechanical model and they'll say look that person has no pain and they're really weak so they'll say aha you know strength doesn't matter but you can do that with psychosocial stuff you'll be like all those people recover from low back pain and they still have high scores of depression right or, and and so so meaning like nothing is like absolute and nothing is a massive driver of dysfunction and so that, that's why you put them all, those prognostic factors or those mediators of pain, they, they're all some things that you could choose to work on. And it's, but at the same time, I wouldn't make it, we have to, we can't make it too daunting to people thinking you have to change all of those. Instead, you could probably just work, work on a few. So like with, with the workers' compensation that you mentioned, it, it might help a little, but I think it just sort of, you're laying out everything on the table that might might influence recovery and then we it sort of says who should get involved with helping this person and maybe it, it maybe they're not ready for addressing their sleep and the sleep is underlying some other health issue so if we were to tell them everything that's wrong with them we're perhaps missing the salutogenic model of what's what are your strengths and what can we build on what can we work on how can we build your yeah. cup so we can get stuck yeah. in the what's wrong with them yeah, it, exactly. Like there's a, a, a paper I'm just reading, of course, and there's lots of these. It's about NEOA again and looking at these prognostic factors. And, and you're a little bit uh, more likely to cope with the pain better if you have high levels of self-efficacy. And you're a little bit more likely not to cope with the pain if you have like high levels of like catastrophizing and depression. And the problem with both of those things is self-efficacy some research says it's really hard to change <laughs> like it's just a trait that you have and depression is kind of a trait as well rather than a, a state i think they use the term rather than something that you can you can dr dramatically change that's that's the issue so yeah they're in the cup but uh you can't fuck people up by saying that we have to change those things they they're just there let's let like what you said was really nice work on the things that you know that sorry what's the model that i never say the word right salutogenesis salutogenic salutogenic yeah yeah so like where where you work on the things that they can right 
and pragmatically, it's a nice question for your patient. Like, what are you doing well and what do you like to do? And then we say, let's do more of that. <laughs> and they're like, what? Don't we need to fix up? I'm like, no. Like, and, and so people wonder, what do we talk about with my patients? Sometimes that, that's the stuff like where we're just giving permission and like facilitating or encouraging our patients to do these things that are healthy, that they already want to do, do more. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know you didn't. Let's do it. <laughs> Such a paradigm shift to what they're used to, I guess, with the, the, the approach from, from healthcare practitioners. It's the finding out what, what is meaningful to them. And I think that comes with also the inherent um, attitude mindset that they can have some pain and still do what they want to do. So there, there's an acceptable level of, of suffering if they, as long as it's, they're working towards what's, what's meaningful yeah. to them, what, what goals they want to achieve. Yeah, I, I had an online consult last week. I need to email him this week. Uh, and he's a patient with five or seven years of knee osteoarthritis pain. And he's just been going to the gym and managing it. Uh, and he's really worried because he can't get in to get it replaced. But he, we just slowly talked about how well he was doing, the fact that he walks every day and that he wants to work out. And he was, it was, he was blown away by this idea that he doesn't have to get it replaced, even though he has radiographic NEOA and some pain, and that exercise can actually make him better and delay, sur delay or avoid surgery forever. And he's like, why, don't, why, doesn't it ha why hasn't anyone told me this before? And he'd seen surgeons and even a physio. He thought he was just doing exercise before to prepare him for his, um, after his replacement. But it had been staving off his replacement and he'd been functioning really well. Like last summer, he was walking the golf course. It's like seven kilometers. And he was almost mad. At, like he thought that I was a maverick. And I'm like, man, I, nothing I'm saying is new. He's like, well, why don't I know about this? And he was getting like, can't believe you couldn't believe i'm like wow that and this is canada so that was disappointing with, with all the the sorries that you normally say and on top of that yeah. getting that all um paradigm shift as we mentioned where he was expecting something from his previous treatments or he's been led down a path a trajectory and now he has to handle all the i guess the changes and the emotions that come with knowing that hey actually that trajectory wasn't exactly accurate so we're now nudging you towards perhaps a more helpful narrative yeah i i i've hardly nudged i i just i didn't change his beliefs at all i just sort of uh said what we could work on what he can expect and he just sort of had this revelation that like his mind mindset changed like i wasn't saying any what i didn't i said what everything he's did before was fantastic let's keep working on that i wasn't throwing any healthcare providers under the bus but at the end he he, he was, was the, like that he came upon that that new belief on on his own i didn't awesome. even mean to do it <laughs> <laughs> and i, I listened to a, one of your podcasts where you mentioned that you had a patient with with neck pain and it was after they've been on a roller coaster, if you yeah, recall yeah. it also. But there's some I do, I do remember. Yes, yeah, so you were going through the, perhaps the, the psychosocial elements, or they were going through the psychosocial elements, and you were going along more of the, you know, it, it's actually a lot of load through that, through that ride. So have you had cases like that where people kind of 
are led to believe that their issues are psychosocial, but there is actually more of perhaps yeah. the, the other factors involved. Yeah, c- c- quite, quite often where they'll say, I have a lot of people talk to me about John Sarno and, and that comes in waves because I had two people last week who wanted to know if I'd know about John Sarno, who's, he's the one who developed the term tension myositis and thought that this is, he's, he's passed away now, but 30 years ago, he's writing books about how, um, you know, pain is caused by just this emotional dysregulation and it's all the psychosocial factors. And he actually got rid of all the physios in his clinics because they're sending mixed messages. If you focused on the physical, it would reinforce that it was a physical problem, which I think is, is too far. And so with these patients, I'm like, yeah, John, John Sarno, he had part of it right, for sure. You know, it's about psychosocial, but there's still some mechanical stuff going on here. And I said, our biomechanical or biological treatment, everything's biological, I know, but that can help out your psychosocial stuff. And you still have a body attached to these emotions. So I'm quite often, I will, I will not, um, not belittle, not minimize, not, anyone, not minimizing the psychosocial. I'm just saying it's part of it in addition to the other stuff. And I would say the same things about the psychosocial factors that your stress and anxiety that I'm like, how long have you been anxious or had feelings of anxiety? Like since I was a kid, I'm like, yeah, that's who you are. That doesn't have to change either. That's just something that we can cope with. That just explains why maybe your pain flares up a lot. It goes from one or two out of 10 to seven or eight out of 10. That's, that's you. That's your, your anxious state. You, we can work on that, managing that, but it doesn't mean you're doomed. Are there other areas related to your anxiety that you've managed in the past? Well, we can do the same thing with pain, right? So sometimes we focus on the mechanical because that's easier to change. That's it. And so even if they were um, catastrophizing, they might've been catastrophizing all their life. And now it's just, they've perhaps um, only just realized or linked it to their current injury. And you're, you're, you're kind of showing, you're not telling them, Hey, it's, it's one of the factors we need to address. It's more they're they're coming to that realization themselves, or or is there yeah, some a li- kind of a, a little bit, a little bit like sometimes I might say it, but they're also sort of saying it. I think they're kind of leading it that yeah, you, you like I, I I know people say not to talk about yourself with your patients, but I sometimes do. Like I think I told you uh, on my course when I saw you was that January. Like I had really bad stomach pain. And I've had stomach pain for 20 years, but I had it in a different spot in, in my stomach this time. And I'm a catastrophizer and I was a mess. And it was, re- my stomach was getting worse with the rumination and catastrophizing. And I say, I really had stomach pain. There's really some stomach physical issues, but my trait of being a ruminator and a catastrophizer made it worse. And then once I ruled out all the negative stuff, I was able, things have calmed down and I, I'm fine, but it took months, you know? So I give examples that it's just, it, the, these traits aren't going anywhere, but again, they're not destiny. Just like we don't get too worried about structural changes with NeoA, it's part of the problem, but it's not destiny. So all those factors are like that. It's just part of it. You just make the call of whether or not you want to do something about it. On, and on that, the topic of catastrophizing and also a few of your, your stories with um, when, when your kids get hurt, can, can, some of these uh, behaviors be, be learnt in the, in the process. So if someone has had a certain upbringing of, of being hypervigilant or in an environment, could be a team sport environment where their coach is very, very aware of certain, uh, 
pain and they, they get reminded of their pain. So can, can some of these, these issues be, be taught to them as, as learnt behavior? I, I know they are. I know, we know that pain is genetic, so there's a genetic component, but there's certainly an environmental component, component related to families. And this is uh, Mick, Mick Sullivan. He's a psychologist. He's the one who invented the pain catastrophizing scale, or at least validated it. And that's his program, the Progressive Goal Attainment Program, where he sh they show videos and his research shows how some of these traits of catastrophizing and hypervigilance are, are taught and we know, I mean, everyone knows that when some kid falls and how the parents react, right? The different parents react differently. And, and uh, so I think some parents react in a way that catastrophizes it and makes the kids cry more. And I, I would imagine there's long-term consequences there. Whereas I always ignore my children, just like I am now with them on a trampoline. It just happens to also be beneficial for when they fall. <laughs> Uh, this this is not a parenting podcast for any of the listeners. No, 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 do not. Yeah, they're on the tramp now. I actually have to watch when they get hurt because I like have minimized it for years. When when they're sore and limping and they say they're sore, like we we actually talk about that because I know that it's it's something worth maybe worth addressing. But they're actually really good at working around it. And I wonder if if some of our treatment or modalities, interventions, narratives tend to, to play on that fact where we are hyper-focused on their pain or the treatment itself is focused specifically on the symptoms and only the symptoms. And we are perhaps teaching the, the patients in the long term, they're learning the, you know, they get the, the relief every once in a while and they, the next time that pain happens in the future, because it might happen, we all get flare-ups, they need to come back. What are, yeah. you, what are your thoughts on Oh, I, I, lots of people have said this for years where we need to normalize uh, an acceptance of some discomfort. Uh, like the whole fibromyalgia tender point things, right? Like those are not specific. They don't tell you anything. I, I have, what are there, 21 points? I'm pretty sure that I have like 19 that are tender. Uh, and I've run pretty, I'm a pretty sensitive person to pain, but uh, I, I would say in the vast majority of people have tender traps or if you're a runner, the inside of your calf is tender or the outside of your hip. And as a manual therapist, that, that, that was like gold for manual therapists because you start poking on people and then you're like, oh, you must be really sore here. I could feel it. And they're like, oh, how did you know that? And then because everyone is sore there. So we've like pathologized normal. That's what I'm afraid that we and I mean we as and I'm part of it or and probably still am just don't know it yet but certainly was more in the past uh, uh, part of it we said that's that's a normal thing if you expect that to be pain-free then you're always going to be looking for a solution that isn't there and I think if you think that's a problem what we do as a protective nervous system we overcook our response to it and in the in the case where uh, an intervention is highly symptom focused. So back to the, the trigger point therapy mm -hmm. to say someone has walks in and they get trigger point therapy. The therapist has been across the literature and they've changed their narrative into something in relation to their nervous system. They talk about other factors and they still give just that intervention. Is there a, with, with an updated narrative and explanation, is there still a, a risk 
that that person can then rely on that on that therapy on that intervention despite the the helpful narrative yeah i mean i think there's a risk for for everything even even like an approach with say peter o'sullivan and the cognitive functional therapy group who i think are just excellent like there's certainly a risk of relying on on uh, talking to someone and getting and seeing any any therapist and being reliant upon them even if you think you're teaching people skills so but i don't i don't think the risk like the consequences of the risk are that bad like if, if someone like it's not really that harmful if someone gets manual therapy a few times and then that's all they have and then they come back six months later and it's once or twice like is that really that that harmful it's when it's like i'm ruined like, like the, the whole negative like my i have the worst trigger points ever unless i get these fixed i can't work i can't do all these things and i can't whatever they have lots of disabilities so it's only i think we got to be cautious in like telling every therapist that they're horrible <laughs> <laughs> that they're you know what i mean and that we we do go maybe go a little too far so like i don't think the risk is is, is that great right is is there a time where you would recommend perhaps um changing updating the the intervention altogether um so i'm hesitant to tell everyone exactly how to practice like i have like i don't really do any a lot of any soft tissue work anymore I, I probably would if like like think oh my back's a little bit sore and can't you just crack it once or twice i'm like yeah we, we can do that so 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 i have but I, i'm not going to tell therapists that they that they can't that they can't see someone once or twice a week for six weeks and do try their manual therapy and have a nice positive optimistic explanation of it that you're just calming things down and you're building them back up to do all the other things they love like that you're going to help a lot of people with that model. So that might not have been helped by someone else. So I, I'm, I, I'm comfortable with that. And when you look at like, I know we're talking about manual therapy and not on purpose here, but that's what everyone talks about that makes people dependent. When you look at the literature, um, I don't think it's really that harmful because you don't either you see a, a, a net positive benefit from the manual therapy but you never see that it underperforms. And if it was so risky, it would show up in the stats that it was underperforming. You don't, you don't see that. So I, I have trouble like shitting on it like it's easy to do. But I do have trouble at the same time saying manual therapy is essential and it's like that it's something that is amazing and has to be done and you're, you're a negligent therapist if you don't do it. That's like, I've got issues with that, of course. And, you say that. <laughs> uh, and in, in terms of passive therapies as a, as a whole, what would be the perhaps most helpful way of, of using it? Would it be a matter of framing it in a, in a way that's helpful for the, for the person? Same as if we were to give a, an exercise, we wouldn't say to someone that they need it, that if it, if it wasn't for that, that exercise, they, they wouldn't have recovered. Or if it wasn't for their specific cueing, they wouldn't have recovered from from their pain so how could we regardless of intervention how could we frame our intervention in a way that doesn't build that dependence uh yeah i i like i missed the first part because the internet kicked up i i think i heard it i, I i'm with you on that because uh i have to take the same critique on what i do which is exercise and activity modification all those things and say well uh can, can i can i be critical of that and i um 
I think we have to lay out options with their patients when it comes to an exercise. So you can definitely, we probably want to strengthen train your hips and your knees. I don't know for sure if you have to, but it definitely has some, I've seen patients before just similar to you that have been helped by it. Uh, and, but guarantee there's other people who haven't done it and done something else and they've gotten better. So it's all about options and that, and that's proper informed consent where you, you're supposed to, we're supposed to explain what, what, what treatments can help. So I, I give options when it comes to exercise uh, and, you know, talk about the research and talk about my own clinical experience. Uh, and, and, and I always say, I don't, I know it can be helpful. I'm not sure this is the reason why. Um, and there's other things we're going to do as well. And even if you don't get better with this, there's other options as well. That's how I always sell it. And if, and if they get better with, with exercise, it might not be the exercise intervention by itself, say the, the biological changes, there's, there's mm -hmm. other factors involved. Same with manual therapy. It, it's, it's perhaps a little bit more than, than just the, the temporary, the, the symptomatic relief. There's the expectations, there's, they're just at that stage of, of readiness. So what are some of the, the non-specific factors that explain some of the, the mechanisms that explain the effect of, of exercise or any intervention? Uh, any, I think yes. more, I think more about exercise to, to be honest. Um, and you know, like this is a big chunk of my course, but I don't get into too much cause it's, it's a, not a big chunk, but it's a, it's an idea behind the course. Um, there's surprisingly little research on the mechanisms of what we do. That's what's amazing. So this is all like anyone listening, take it with a grain of salt. This I'm, uh, I'm trying to like build an argument based on other uh, research out there, but you'll find very little research that looks at it. So uh, I should pull up one of my slides, but anyways, uh, exercise can certainly help uh, like at a biological tissue based level. We, we might be influencing the amount of nociception produced at the level of the tissue. We might be building up the tissue, you know, uh, around injured or sensitive tissue and that offloads it somehow. Uh, we might be changing the injured tissue itself to decrease, you know, the activation of nociceptors. We might, um, like say with knee pain, might be building up the size of the quadriceps and, and in turn that dampens the load on the kneecap and you have less nociceptors. So you, it could be a very peripheral or building up the strength of the hips via something called uh, dynamic coupling. Without there being a change in, in kinematics, you'll see uh, a change in the amount of stress at the knee and maybe less nociception. Um, then we could head our way up to the spinal cord and say exercise maybe doesn't change nociception at all, but it changes our response to nociception. So there could be like a habituation response at the spinal cord. There could be sort of the gating, which I don't know well, where you just, you have uh, the inhibition of nociception at the level of the spinal cord. Um, and, and then related to that, this idea of maybe we're changing the response to nociception, there could be something happening at the brain, which I don't understand at all and, and no one really does, but that could be the expectations. That could be hope. That could be um, optimism. That could be like, changing how someone views stress on their knee so they actually think of stress as a positive thing rather than a negative thing right so this this is like broken broken we break this up in two two areas maybe you change nociception or maybe two you change the response to nociception 
and the second one's the bigger more murky area which is probably the hugest area that happens we just it's hard to study and that's like all the other other things and then we know exercise helps with depression so it could be secondary mediators or sorry should i stop exercise <laughs> like is an anti-inflammatory and that would influence system-wide stuff or has neuroimmune responses or when you exercise if you're doing it in a group you're getting your life back and now you have like these goals and goal setting and meaningful activities and none of these things do we really know how they influence pain but they do seem to be correlated with improvements in pain so maybe that's why activity works <laughs> and yeah, um, i read a paper on that yeah, i'm sure you'll you'll blow someone's mind if you if you tell them because patients sometimes ask you know why why am i suddenly better and the first question that i would probably respond with is why do you think and then if they're still um, wanting some more answers, having a whole list like this really sells sells exercise, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and that's what I'm doing with that neo thing, neo a thing. Now is like here's the mechanical reasons, but there's other reasons as well. And again, we already talked about this, but the side effects are are great. But at the same time, going back to that one question, I'm also really open to not exercising for my patients. Like the people with patellofemoral pain syndrome, who, what do the people look like who don't have to do quadricep extensions, who can just start running, start walking, just hang out, sleep better? What do they look like? Because a lot of people don't want to do our stupid exercises, right? And so I also want to sell uh, a meaningful task or other way to cope with, with pain approach. I like the, the multi... Um, like a multi or uh, multiple approaches to help with pain. And so I'm, I'm always open to that. Cause like you asked about how exercise could be kind of negative. If we sell exercises, like you have to do this and they like, I'm not going to do my squats three times a week or these leg extensions. They're like, then they can think, well, they're just as doomed to have knee pain. Cause I know I have pain. I haven't really been doing my exercises. How many people say that? Right. That's too, too many. Yeah. Yeah. So at the same time, like, we should also say, what else could you do if you don't want to do exercise and why are those things helpful as well? So laying out the options on the table. Many roads to, to Rome, right? And exactly. the road that they choose might work for a variety of reasons that we can't, you know, specify. No, no. And uh, I think most researchers are really into that. Like you see it in, um, in like the biomechanical stuff where a, a treatment that's supposed to change hip kinematics, you know, hip abduction, adduction or internal rotation, it's super helpful for pain. And then those biomechanical variables don't change. <laughs> so it's like, which is nice. Cause it says, keep doing what you're doing. It just doesn't work how you think it's working. So considering we, we can't really say for, for sure the, the mechanisms, and there are so many factors when it comes to, to pain. It's a multifactorial experience. There's, there's the argument that we should be focusing on disability. We should be focusing on resilience, their responses to pain. Should, we be, should that be our, our target? Obviously, dependent on where that person is at. There are some people that aren't ready to, to go down that route or the symptoms are just overwhelming them and that's their focus and that's been their focus for years. But should we try to go more towards that side of things where we're building up the resilience, building up? Yeah. 
I, I, I think so. Like I, I, I still like to do both or all of these things, but I, I think, um, you know, again, an online patient I'm just thinking of, cause we were, I was just emailing that Saturday morning about this are like the, the shift in the rehab was like, and I always say this poorly and maybe I need some help. Like, and what I will kind of want to straightforwardly say it. So I'll just say it here is you need to just give up on trying to fix yourself, right? Like give yourself a rehab vacation, right? Where if you want to work out, work out just because you want to work out, not because you need to do this to fix your back, right? Like, like always chasing the symptom reduction or fixing things might be the wrong thing because you've been doing it for three years, right? So like, reimagine like reconceptualize why you're doing these exercises they're still fine for you to do but it's not about finding the right exercise that's going to like help center your femoral head in you know the acetabulum and that's going to decrease your hip pain it's like do these exercises because you enjoy doing them and you know start doing the things that you're missing again so yeah i think there's a point when some people where i guess that is that, that's what you mean by resiliency and and all that stuff where you stop focusing on symptoms. Yeah, that, that I think there's, that's huge there. And like, that would be really nice. Like, I think there'd it'd be really nice to see some research that tells us like when we have that discussion and, and how to, how to, how to frame it. And Cause I have it a lot. It's just not easy because it can backfire. Yeah. So, so if, if you can show the patient that what they've been trying for the past three years has been trying to fight their pain, and you, you perhaps can show them during the, the session a, a quick change or maybe just go through that, that process of they've been caught in a cycle. You've made sense of their experience and you've, you've come at it from a different angle. It's up to them if they're, if they're ready for it. But I'm sure if, if someone's been shown that they've been stuck in a cycle for, for so long and we've just we've outlined that for them and they've, they've seen it, then they're, they're ready for maybe now more of that salutogenic process or the, the function focus what can they do with yeah. with the pain versus shit fix me greg yeah and the irony with that and i often say this is this is this is odd but when you kind of give up and trying to like make the pain less today or the pain less tomorrow and think of long term and you just focus on doing other things that you enjoy and that you want to it that ends up helping with the pain <laughs> That's the, the real uh, odd thing. And that's when you get those emails like five months later from someone who's like super thankful and you're like, what happened? How do we end this? You know, <laughs> like, and they're like, yeah, what you said, it took a while, but here it is. And here's me rollerblading and it kicked in. Like it finally clicked. Like, okay, good. It's not like the best success story at five months later, but those things happen a lot. Awesome. And there's a, the phrase I have you telling me I have to live with it. Like I have to live with this pain. Maybe we can yes. And that with yes. And you can live better and you can live the life that you want and you can go back to your activities. Yes. You can live with the pain and do so much more with it. Yeah. And, but I, I always, I mean, I do still want people to have less pain. That's my uh, hang up as therapist and, if I had pain, which I do, but um, uh, I I still hold that, and maybe I'm holding people back that hope up once you sort of like focus on other things that still can help have less pain. 
that's that's the thing like as a side effect just, yeah yeah in a way you're just not totally focusing on it's very zen or something so i love it we we went from um how to parent to to philosophy and zen so greg it's been an absolute pleasure i really appreciate your your time if people have been living under a rock and if people are also interested in in finding out i'm sure there are people that are looking to see if you're going to do courses online courses tell us yeah i plan on doing an online thing i'm definitely having a webinar i think in may um but uh i want to do an online thing where you where you get like i've just been toying with this you get an uh, the online course and you get to go to the course in life like for the same rate that was sort of my idea you do it online and then you come for the discussion so that you do most of it online and then you come off but it's all it's all it's going to be the same stuff it's just you get it twice and then you have all the material later so probably be shorter like that's the idea right and then it's all there i'm just i just don't want to do i'm trying to make uh i've been learning teaching myself like video editing um for the past six months um and all these to make it good make make it sexy yeah that's me (laughs) awesome well, yeah, and I'm coming back to Australia. I'm coming. I'm just tr- tr- trying to decide where next year, next February. I want to oh, go yeah, to Melbourne no. again. Are you in Melbourne? Where are you again? Sydney. Get stuff. No, you've you've been to Melbourne like three times already. Two times. No, I. I'm from Sydney. But you were I. But you were in Melbourne the first time I met you. Yeah. Oh, I'm you went to. Oh, junkie. okay. That's. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, no, I've only been to Melbourne the one one time, but I did two courses there. Yeah. Yeah. You did two in the same week. Yeah. And hopefully you can, I like Sydney. You can add a little bit of travel as well for yourself. Yes. So I, that, that's what we did for the my, the first time ever when I was in Sydney was we spent four, four extra days. I've never done that. My wife came for the first time in five years. That's the only like normally I fly in and fly right back. I went to New Zealand once for two days. I flew in on the Friday and flew home Sunday night. Anyway, no one cares about that. Better edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And until next time my friend thank you okay thank you